Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly. Welcome to Tea and Therapy. I hope everyone is doing well. I wanted to take some time for this opportunity to speak with you about the different types of mental health providers. I know that there are different times in life where people may pursue assistance for the mental health and looking at getting assistance and may not know, you know, where do you go? What does it mean when someone is a as a PsyD or a PhD or an LMFT or an LMHC? You know, what do all those initials mean? So what I wanted to do today was just take some time and briefly explain to you, and again, this is a brief, um, a little bit of a textbook information about what those different titles mean. And then also um, after that, there is an opportunity that I spoke with Ashlyn Dalfit. And we spoke about what it means for each of us, for myself to be a clinical psychologist, and for Ashlyn, what does it mean for her to be a licensed marriage and family therapist. And just briefly, I'm wanting to provide you with that information. And before we do so, um, recently I've been able to do therapy through telemental health. Basically, that is, I'm in my home and I see clients online. And in that opportunity of doing that, I've had the opportunity that I've met some of my clients in the morning or maybe even in the afternoon, and they are sitting and they're drinking tea. (laughs) Okay, tea or coffee or something in their cup. So tea and therapy, I like to think that they're drinking tea. So with that, uh, again, as usual, I do want to take a moment to also then check in with Joy. And Joy, could you give us a little bit of information perhaps on maybe just simply today your favorite tea or what's a good tea to have when you're sitting and maybe talking or just one of those nice little social teas. So let's check in with Joy. Hey Joy, what's the tea? Thank you, Dr. Kimberly. I have the tea. While I've been in quarantine, I've been drinking one of my favorite blends, the smooth and mellow rooibos vanilla blended with the bright and fruity red berries. It's completely caffeine free and I'm happy to have some of the great health benefits such as antioxidants and increased heart health. I share my day with loved ones over a hot or cold cup and even bring it to a virtual tea and therapy Zoom call. It's been an effective home remedy. And that's the tea. Back to you, Dr. Kimberly. Thank you, Joy. That's interesting. I've been actually having similar myself. I've been having the red rooibos. So it's nice to know that even though we're not uh, together and haven't seen each other during this quarantine that great minds still think alike. So thank you very much for sharing your tea uh, during this time. What I want to do now is get back to, as I mentioned before, just a very brief introduction about the different professions that you may actually see for some of you who may be looking for a therapist. What I wanted to do is basically the information that I'm sharing, it's from my perspective as a psychologist and uh, what you might see when you're looking for a therapist, I want to help you eliminate some of the basic confusion that may be out there. And part of that confusion is that we don't always necessarily state our full titles. And there may be lots of abbreviations that you may see after a name. So I just want to talk a little bit about that. And before I do, I want to also make sure and just to clarify that I'm not in any way saying that any profession is better than any other profession. There are excellent uh, clinicians out there who are 
psychologists, who are social workers, there are excellent clinicians who have master, master degrees and some that have bachelor's degree. And then there are some that, you know, maybe they're not as great. So it doesn't um, necessarily mean that just because a person has or doesn't have a specific degree that they're going to be any better or any worse of a therapist than another person. I also wanted to let everyone know that for most individuals, if they are not uh, licensed at a master's level and if they cannot see individuals on their own independently, most of the time those individuals will also have a supervisor that is working with them as well. What I want to make sure that um, people know as well is that even though you may be seeking assistance from a therapist, you still have a right to ask that therapist questions. You can ask about their schooling, um, you know, anything that's going to be relevant to your to you getting assistance. Um, certain personal questions a therapist may not answer, but I think that for some people, you know, it's important that they find someone that has maybe the same religious background. I think that's perfectly acceptable as well. If you're working with someone of a different race, it's okay to bring up those race issues. Someone of a different gender, it's okay to bring up any gender concerns. If you are of a, of a orientation, sexual orientation that may not be heterosexual, even maybe it is heterosexual, it's okay to even ask your therapist what their views are on you know heterosexuals, homosexuality, what their views are on sexual orientation, what their views are on, on gender identity. Your therapist is going to be a person that you're going to be sharing very intimate details with. And it's okay that from the beginning that you try to find a therapist that's going to align with, you know, your way of thinking that you don't have to go in and really explain too much of who you are. Of course, the therapist needs to know your background story to help you and to assist you as you work with them, but you shouldn't have to go in and explain what it's like to be gay or lesbian or what it's like to be, you know, African-American you can explain those things from your perspective, but you shouldn't be necessarily educating your therapist on different issues. When I'm thinking about um, when you're out here looking for a therapist as well, and I'll, I will make sure that I post this information on the website version, you can also go to every state has a licensing board. And that licensing board will make sure that that person, you know, has completed the required education that they need, that they can, that they are doing their continued education, and that they have a license to practice. And the state psychology boards, mental health boards, every state has a licensing board. They often have one website for everything that requires a license in that state. And you can actually go in, put in that person's name. Um, sometimes you may or may not need to put in their, occup their occupation, their title, but just their name search. And that will then pop up what that person, you know, if that person's, if that person's actually licensed in your state. Also, if there have been any type of restrictions that's been imposed on them at any point, then sometimes that may also show up as well. So you can, you know, I know that you might be in crisis or if, you, if you're not in crisis, you have this time to op an opportunity to research your therapist. When I'm uh, contacting individuals for the very first time, I do make a phone call with them to see if we're a good fit. One, I'm looking for, you know, if they have any past psychiatric diagnosis. For some diagnosis, you know, outpatient care isn't the best care. If I'm seeing you once a week, some people may need something that's more than weekly. I can't um, accommodate that in my office, so that person might be ruled out of my practice. When I'm contacting that person, I also give them an opportunity to answer, to ask questions of me. And so when you're making contact with a therapist, be it that phone call that you're making, that email that you're making, and, you know, that first 
online appointment that you're making and eventually that first in-office session that you're making, you are more than willing and more than capable of actually having an opportunity to interview your therapist as well. I do not get offended if people interview me because I think that it's important for individuals coming and seeking my services to also be able to make sure that I'm going to be the better, the best fit for them as well. So uh, just to break down and a little bit about what some of the titles and titles are, and I'm not going to get specifically specific about what um, someone may do. So there are certain titles that, for for instance, that it might set out. It's sort of like a job description where it's like other duties as a sign. So for the example that I'm thinking about is social workers. So a lot of people in the past because I studied social work in the past, I, I think I did about a year, and then I knew that I wanted to stay in psychology. Uh, traditionally, people thought of social workers as this is a person that's going to you know, be linking you to resources, and they're really concerned about the community setting and social justice and those types of things. That is true. I think that social workers can still, even psychologists, can still link people to resources. Uh, but when we're looking at professions, and especially those that are beginning to do their own individualized treatment and have their own private clinics, we're not necessarily completing all the bullet points. Um, For example, with psychology, uh, psychology in Indiana, psychologists are one of the professions that can do um, testing. I've been trained to do testing, but testing is not a part of my practice. Okay, So I'm going to just give you the basic uh, definitions that you need. And then from there, you can also then ask your person that you're looking at seeking services with, you can ask them to clarify how they engage in their practice. So the first thing I want to talk about, one of the issues that you might see is a BS or a BA. And that BS and BA, the S is for science and the A is for art. BA means that person has a bachelor's degree. And a bachelor's degree typically requires four years after the completion of high school. Basics that you need to know. In the state of Indiana, most individuals cannot practice therapy uh, independently with just a bachelor's degree. So if you're seeing someone with a bachelor's degree, uh, chances are that they will have a supervisor. And I also think that if you're seeing someone with a bachelor's degree, they're typically gonna be working with an agency. I think that it's also okay for you to ask who's your supervisor, and then to also maybe research who their supervisor is as well. The next initial that is there is M, and M is for masters. And as in regards to education, person with a master's degree typically has two additional years beyond their bachelor's degree. So an individual with a master's degree typically has six years of education outside of the traditional high school diploma. Similar to a bachelor's, you'll see an MS, which is a master of science, and an MA, which is a master of art. Sometimes that depends on the school. There are some schools that consider psychology and art and some schools that consider psychology a science. I consider psychology a science, and I do have an MS. My school also considered it a science as well. For social workers, other mental health professionals, you might see that they might have the the MS or the MA. Um, My MS actually was in community psychology, and some people might have, you know, the master's in in mental health. So their master's, you can get those in different types of, of study. For social workers, they will have an MSW, which is a Master's of Social Work. Continuing with the education, um, outside of the master's degree, so the next degree that someone might have is a doctorate degree. 
And the doctorate degree is typically five to six years, depending on the school, um, five to six years in addition to uh, the master's degree. So I had, um, it ends up being like lots of years, actually. Uh, so, so that five to 10 years, so that's like 10 years of education outside of your high school diploma. And one thing that I do want to spell out is that the the difference here, when you're looking at a doctorate degree, I have a doctorate degree, I can call myself Dr. Martin, people can call me Dr. Martin, Dr. Kimberly. But it's important to know that my degree, my doctorate degree is clinical based and it's educational based. So I am not a medical doctor. In regards to psychology and mental health, that distinction is that typically a psychiatrist will be the doctor of psychiatry and they will have the MD degree and a psychologist will typically have a PsyD, which is a PSYD or a PhD. I have a PSYD and that means I have a doctorate degree of psychology, which is in clinical psychology. Some people may have a PhD and social workers can also get a PhD and that means that there's a doctorate degree in, in philosophy. This is another example where that's not a strict rule. So if some people that have philosophy, you're thinking, okay, that's teaching, that's learning, that's education. These are individuals that go out and just teach. And that's not necessarily true. You can have a PhD and then also do clinical work. My PsyD is, is a clinical degree and I, my training was heavily based on clinical. We did have to do a research project, which was a dissertation, but the majority of my work um, is focused on the clinical work. When doing my PsyD and any type of PhD, you will typically also have what's considered a practicum. Many master level programs also have a practicum. Practicums are short durations of opportunities for the individual to engage in the practice that they're doing in their chosen field, be it psychology, social work, or some other mental health practice. In addition to that, what an individual will have will also be after the practicum, a few years after that, a year or two, that they also then engage in an internship. And an internship, you have more responsibility than what you had in the, as a practicum, and it's typically for a longer duration of time. And the internship is necessary when you're doing your doctorate degree. To clarify, uh, in the state of Indiana, as a PH, as a PsyD psychologist, I cannot prescribe medication. There are a few states within the U.S. where individuals with psychology degrees can prescribe medication, and they then also would need additional training in order to do that as well. So this, the distinctions there, psychiatrists, and again, these are very generic distinctions. A psychiatrist prescribes a medication and a psychologist does not. So that's often a question that people have when they contact me. So I've gone through the education. So again, bachelor's level, you will have four years outside of high school, master's, additional two more years outside of your bachelor's degree. And typically with a, with a PsyD degree, you'll have additional five to six years following your master's degree. So really, there's going to be more education. And again, there are individuals who have a master's degree who are probably do just as well in therapy as they do with um, a doctorate degree. But for me, it was important for me to get my doctorate degree uh, just because I know of the educational level that was there. I know the difference that I, I obtained when I had the master's degree and when I had the doctorate degree. 
Again, I'm not saying that any profession is better than the other or any degree is better than the other, but I do know what I knew at a bachelor's, what I knew at a master's, and what I knew at a doctorate. Again, talk to your therapist, see how the two of you can work together, and what's going to be most important for you is that relationship. Also, I think one thing that helps with all of these um, degrees when we're engaged in the practice of our, when we're engaged in our profession, we also have to take continuing education classes, okay? And those continuing educations, um, often they're mandated by the employer, they're mandated by the state of Indiana as well. We have to keep track of what education we're getting. They're mandated by our licensing board, our, um, you know, the APA, which is the American Psychological Association. So individuals are continuing to seek ongoing continued education. Additionally, you may want to ask if a person has any type of additional certifications as well. What I'll talk about in a different podcast are the different types of trainings and the modalities that are available for mental health where people can get certain certifications for this. While I was completing my doctorate degree, I also had certification in cognitive behavioral therapy and I also have certification in mind-body medicine Schedule didn't quite line up, and I am one class short of getting my certification in hypnotherapy as well. In addition, so with that, uh, with the certification, then people can also get licensure. Um, All individuals who are practicing on their own are licensed individuals. I'm a licensed psychologist, but I don't have to put L in front of my name because I have the doctorate degree, and that indicates that I am licensed as well. And what you'll see after my name as well is an HSPP. And the HSPP is Health Service Provider of Psychology. And that states that I can, on my own office, do things completely independent. Um, there are rules I have to follow from the state and insurance companies. But other than that, I'm very much on my own. I'm independent. I don't need any type of supervisor or supervision. L is licensure. And some of the licenses that you might see is LMHC, which is Licensed Mental Health Counselor. LPC, sometimes that is a licensed pastoral counselor, and then the LCSW. When you see these in front of the individual's name, um, because I'm not one, I'm assuming that that is meaning that most of these individuals do have master level degrees. And again, just checking with your with your person that you're working with. So as I mentioned, again, that was just a brief um, dispelling the initials that may be there that you may have some questions or concern about. Most of the counselors that you're going to run into are mental health providers, psychologists, um, pastoral counselors, and social workers. Currently in the state of Indiana, you might have a a career coach, counselor. Some of those individuals, especially career coaching, does not have to be licensed. So just when you're meeting with someone, just um, again, do your research, do your questioning as well. Well, if you're looking for a therapist, where do you go? How do you look for a therapist? You can do a Google search. There's nothing wrong with that because that Google search will actually lead you typically to that person's website. Um, You can do a psychology today, psychology today. It mentioned psychology today, but other health professionals can um, have profiles on that page, including social workers, pastoral counselors, um, mental health providers. So psychology today is, is a site that you can use. If you have insurance, your insurance company also has a database of individuals who are at the time of the update or are or were in that insurance network. So you can also contact your insurance company to see what providers are in your network. And 
and uh, we'll also at the end of or on my Facebook or my sorry on my podcast page I'll also list these uh, sites for you where you can research therapists as well so I hope that that little bit was helpful for you and we're going to just take a brief very brief pause here and then get you to the interview where you can discuss where you can listen to more uh, about the differences between a psychologist and a LMHC okay back soon Okay, so uh, this is Dr. Kimberly, and what we're doing today is continuing the conversation. Um, I also have Ashlyn Dalfit here, and she is actually an LMFT, is that correct? Yes. Great. And I'm just going to talk about, you know, personally, so allowing that information that I gave before, which was kind of textbook, to really get to the point of personalizing that information. And so Ashlyn has agreed to be with me here today, and just to kind of answer some questions that people may have in general about, you know, who we are as, as therapists. And uh, most people do know me. They know me as Dr. Kimberly. And Ashlyn, since you're new to us, would you please just go ahead and briefly kind of introduce yourself and we'll take it from there. Yeah, of course. Um, so my name is Ashlyn Doubtfit. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I have been practicing since 2015. Um, I work with a variety of uh, presenting problems um, with uh, family constellations. So I work with individuals, couples, uh, family systems as well uh, to address um, a variety of issues. So I do have a few questions. And then also, you know, if there's anything that I missed that you might think about when you have worked with people or people have called you, um, then please feel free to add those in as well. So just about four or five questions here. And we'll just go back and forth. So I'll talk about my experience with these questions as a psychologist and then what you have as an LMFC. So the first question is, you know, with the titles, we have all these different alphabets that are behind our names. And uh, like really, so sometimes as we talk about that definition of that, it kind of tells us what we mean. Like, okay, that's a psychologist, that's a marriage and family therapist. But what I want to know is if you could tell everybody a little bit about your education. So like what was involved, you know, your educational process to this point, And then also if you have any educational steps that you're going to take in the future. Yes. So to get to this point, um, I started with um, undergrad. I was a psychology and family studies uh, dual degree um, completed that from there I uh, started a master's program in marriage and family therapy and completed that in two years and I am currently um, enrolled in a doctoral program for marriage and family therapy as well okay. so with marriage and family therapy then that takes um, two years after your bachelor's degree yes okay so a total of six Yes. Now, uh, with that, so that's similar to psychology, that my route was getting the bachelor's degree, which is a four-year degree, then the master's degree, which was two, and then I think my doctorate program is about five or six years. And with your, and my doctorate program, we had like practicums and internships where we had to do a, a year of you know, kind of testing practicum, and then you get a year of therapy practicums. Were therapy, were practicums part of the master's uh, marriage and family therapy as well? Yes. Yes, um, so we had a um, clinical practicum that we started the first semester, actually, of uh, the program. Uh, the school that I went to, their approach to therapy is that, you know, you learn by doing. Um, so that was different compared to some of maybe the other 
programs that I looked at, they didn't allow you to start uh, your in your clinical practicum until uh, the end of your first year or the beginning of your second. And with that, I know that for some people, <clears throat> you know, some people may call and they particularly want a, like a social worker or a psychologist, marriage and family therapist. Can you talk a little bit? Because I know part of, you know, we all fall under this umbrella of mental health professionals. Can you distinguish for me what, what your typical process may be? So if I were to come to you, you know, as a client, um, you know, what would our initial intake, our initial, you know, contact look like? What would our appointments look like then? If you have like a set set of how many times you would see a person or not? Yeah. Yes. Uh, I think one of the biggest misconceptions with MFTs is that we only see um, like married couples and families. Uh, so I think a lot of times people hear that that title and assume like, oh, this isn't a provider that I can work with because they only work with um, like married couples and families. Um, so that is definitely not true. Uh, MFTs can work with individuals, whether that's adults, whether that's children. Um, we work with couples, whether they are married, cohabitating, polyamorous, um, and then any um, family system that you could think of, whether it's you know step families, um, you know your you and your grandparents. That there's a wide variety, so there's um, flexibility there in terms of who we are able to treat and work with. Uh, so I think that's one of the great things about um, being an MFT is that the name is misleading, uh, but it's named that way due to our approach to therapy and treating issues. So we look at uh, issues, whether that's like emotional or mental health issues within the context of a family systems perspective. Uh, so that's kind of where the, the marriage and family title comes from. And when you say family system, just to kind of clarify for people, so if I come as an individual, are you wanting like for me to talk about my family? Are you wanting my family members to be present at some point? It's one of those things where if it's important to you and you feel like they would, you would like them to be a part of the therapy, then of course. Um, I understand that for some people that's not feasible, it's not desired, or it's not safe um, in some circumstances as well. Uh, but it's also one of those things where it's like, even if they're not in the room, we as MFTs and systems thinkers understand that those people are still having an impact um, in your life in some way. So it's kind of, even if we're not there, still kind of thinking about the work that we're doing and how the, the system as a whole is being affected. And talk a little bit about, you know, because what I want to do as well is, you know, this is primarily for individuals that are in Indiana. And how do people, you know, if someone were to contact you, like what would that process be? And you can feel free at this point, I'll ask again at the end, you know, if, if you want to share like your contact information as well. But if what's the what's, what's the typical process? So I'm I call up the phone, I'm like, hey Ashley, can I see you? Yeah, uh, so a typical process uh, at my current agency is you will speak with our intake um, person. They'll kind of get some background information from you just to figure out, you know, um, a little bit about you, who you are, um, maybe what your current concern is that's leading you to seek out therapy services. 
And from there, we would schedule like an intake appointment for you and I to speak and for me to kind of get to know you, you to get to know me. Um, and then I, just to get a better understanding of what my approach to therapy is, um, for me to get a better understanding of what your hopes and expectations are for therapy services and going from there. Uh, one of the main things that I always stress with my clients is that uh, therapy is a collaborative process. Um, so you are definitely involved in, in this with me. It's not a situation where I'm directing you and telling you what you're going to work on or what you need to fix. Um, this is a environment where we will collaborate and work with one another to figure out how to get you where you'd like to be in life and to achieve the goals that you want. And I think that that part is important too because I've had clients come in before for me, like I do also do the intake process. I'll do a phone screening, uh, typically maybe 10 minutes or so. And then I'll have a person right now because we're doing telehealth, I'll have them fill out paperwork and then do that intake process. And the intake process for me, that's really when I'm doing the majority of the talking. It'll have a certain set of questions that I want to have answered. But then after that, you know, it's really, I tell my clients that it's, it's client driven. Okay. I said, you, exactly. you tell me where you want to go, I'm yeah. the guide, I'll get you there, but I can't, you know, really pull teeth. And I think that that's, you know, something that for those that are listening, that they may want to know as well, because it sounds like you and I have that sort of similar approach. And I do know that there are other therapists who may not have that approach and it's, it's not wrong. It's just a different approach mm-hmm. that um, some people call it more like that manualized treatment then I have this certain protocol of this is what we do at session one this is what we do at session two and I think that just um, connects to what people need and what their personalities are that some people really like it for me to just be there listening and guiding them and others others will even tell me like I have a little bit more direction (laughs) (laughs) you know and it it gets tricky because you know we're, we're helping and we're guiding and it's not really like we're giving advice and telling people what to do Yes, yes. Like one of the things that I've, um, I normally mention during the intake appointment is that uh, I, I may be an expert on therapy, but you're an expert on your life. So I'm not here to tell you how you right. should be living or what you should be doing or what needs to change. Um, I'm just here to help you kind of work through that for yourself and kind of just guide you along that process. Right. So it's two experts getting together. Yes. And helping you same similar similar talk as well yeah Uh, another thing that some people may have is that do you have like a particular set of sessions I know like uh, for some people with EAP programs they can have like maybe six sessions with their EAP insurance and they move to another insurance Uh, some programs um, some agencies want to say hey we see people for 12 appointments do you or your agency have any limit on appointments yes Uh, we don't have a limit on appointments it's really just about medical necessity, um, you know, being able to ensure that the services being provided are needed and that the the progress and changes are being made in a fairly reasonable uh, time frame. Now, when you see clients, do you see them, um, what I typically start off with is I'll start off on a weekly basis and then from weekly, then I'll move to bi-weekly and then monthly and then I have some people that you know, periodically out of the blue, they'll pop up. Remember me? Can I come back in? Like, yeah, of course. 
do you have like a particular flow? And I tell my clients, I say there's no, you know, it's a sequence of weekly, bi-weekly, monthly, um, but there's no set of, okay, we'll do six weeks and then we'll do three, bi-weekly. I don't have any of that. Do you have a similar structure at all? Yes, mine's similar, um, especially in the, in the very beginning, I do like to do weekly, um, at least for the first four sessions, just for us to kind of get to know each other and build that relationship and kind of make adjustments from there. If like, you know, do we need to continue with weekly? Should we adjust to bi-weekly? And as therapy progresses, uh, beginning to taper off services, I'm like, okay, so we were at weekly, let's move to bi-weekly and maybe like once a month and so on. Okay. Uh, some people ask me when I say, you know, I'm a psychologist, and they'll say, well, what's your specialty? And I don't like that question. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and oftentimes I'll just say people, right? Um, so I don't have, per se, when I think about specialty, for me, I have like a theoretical orientation. And I'll say, well, my theoretical orientation is in that area of psychology. And for those that missed it there's a podcast that i talk about what that means and then from there i might have a preference like i'll have a preference to work with people that are 25 and older um, but my specialty i would say it's it's people mm-hmm. and then with the atlerian orientation we kind of have this a premise of what's happening in a person's life so basically what i tell clients is that typically we develop these scripts in life of how we should be functioning in life and we often develop those in, in early childhood. And for the most part, those scripts kind of match up with what we think and how life is. Right. And when something doesn't line up with what our scripts were, then that's when a person enter, enters therapy for me. And then it's my job to help them to determine like, okay, where was this script, you know, incorrect? And you know, kind of what needs to be rewritten to move forward in life. Do you have, um, like a similar, you know, theoretical orientation, or if you prefer the term specialty, do you have a, like a view of what you look at? And again, it's looking at the individual, but a view of what you kind of base things off, like a skeleton model per se. Yes, uh, so I work, or operate out of a like integrative um, perspective as far as therapy. So I don't have like a standard, like, or like I only do CBT. Mm-hmm. Um, I know like for some people that's kind of like, you know, this is the model I work from and that's kind of where I stay. Um, so I'm a little bit more flexible in that just because I feel that there, there isn't a model that's going to work for everyone. So you have to be able to make adjustments to meet the needs of, of the person that's sitting in front of you. In terms of like conceptualization of problems, one of the things that I tell people is that you know you people do better when they can. Um, people just typically don't um, you know go through struggles because they enjoy it or because they want to. Um, so one of the things that I focus on in my sessions is helping clients identify okay where in your life are things are there constraints for you that are preventing you from functioning and living the life you want to. Then once we identify those, okay, how do we go about lifting those constraints so that you can function? And you mentioned um, CBT. And so that's going to be another episode because I also think there's so many abbreviations that are thrown out there like CBT (laughs) and DBT and EMDR. 
So I, I will invite you back, you know, to kind of kind of ex- to explain that. And so for those that don't know, so CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy. And like you said, it is a particular, you know, a style, a format. Some people are, you know, they, they swear by it and that's all that they will base their therapy on. That's nothing wrong with that. That's that person's preferences. And then there are those of us that, you know, we're aware of the CBT. I myself, I have a certificate in it, but it's, it's um, one of the tools I have, but it's more, it's not my go-to. Um, so I think that when we look at uh, therapy, what people need, I think also, you know, part of what I like to do is that then future podcast is in detangling those abbreviations that we have for people. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking at this, so it also gives me uh, something else that I often think about in my practice, which is different from most people sometimes. And that's the view on diagnosis. Okay. So I'll tell you my view first, and then I'll ask you your view. <laughs> and my view, and my view comes from Atlerian psychology as well, in that we, we don't like to use diagnosis, right? And the reason why is because often that isn't looking at the individual. And often when you're using diagnosis, it's just, it's a cluster of symptoms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes I'll get people and, and maybe they're looking for another therapist or they've had someone before, or maybe they've gotten online and they self-diagnose. And they might say, well, I have anxiety. And I'll say, what does that mean? What does that look like? And they look at me like, you don't know what that means, what that looks like? Right. <laughs> And the reason why I say that is because anxiety can look like 50 million different things. Exactly. Right. And so I, I tell people and, you know, I, I do back it up because I, I have had the training and I back it up when I need to. And diagnosis or, you know, it's a, it's a, like a little guide, but then more specifically guide diagnosis are more relevant, more essential for insur- insurance purposes. Exactly. Yeah that I, I want to know more about the person, right, than that cluster of the symptoms because it can just look like depression, can look like so many different things for different people. Um, so with that, you know, what is your view on diagnosis and, and how do you work with clients that come in and say, you know, I have this diagnosis or you don't want to see me because someone's diagnosed me as borderline personality disorder. You're like, what do you, how do you work around that? Yes, I work in a similar a similar fashion as you. It sounds like um, it's just using the diagnosis as information, um, and not looking at that as like a hard and fast rule of like, oh, this person has depression, so they must be experiencing this symptom. So I'm going to approach therapy in this way. Um, really being able to look past the diagnosis, like you said, and see the person, and understanding the context in which those symptoms are presenting. Um, you know, for example, with, with anxiety, um, you know, the basis of that is kind of having irrational thoughts. And if you're working with, you know, maybe an African-American male who has anxiety around the police, is that an irrational thought? Um, you know, so having to really look at some of those things that diagnosing and the DSM doesn't capture sometimes, Um, So really just kind of looking at helping my clients understand that the diagnosis is helpful um, in terms of like insurance and things like that and providing maybe some understanding for them is maybe why they're experiencing some of the symptoms they are, Um, but then also helping them see past that as well as like we can, we can still work with things and that you're not your diagnosis.
Um, I'm really big on language with my clients. Uh, so one of the things that I'll tell them is, is you know, you have depression, you're not depressed. Um, yeah. It's in kind of like the language with that sometimes of like, I think sometimes there's so, there's already so much stigma around um, like mental health and seeking services that having that diagnosis at times can be like really harmful for people uh, in terms of how they're perceived by others, kind of how they start to internalize what that diagnosis means from society standpoint. Right, because I think too, if you look at mental health, it's on this continuum. And it's also, there are things that, you know, some things are organic and then some things are situational. and maybe at this point in, in this person's life maybe they were displaying symptoms that met that diagnosis but if that diagnosis then follows you throughout your life maybe this time you enter therapy there's something else that's going on and that's right. not what you're, you're experiencing exactly. so you know uh, one of the atlerian concepts with that is we call it this psychology of use and often it's unconscious that basically a person is using those symptoms in order to get a need met so, you know, it's, it's similar to what you said, that a person doesn't have anxiety. They're using that in a way to get, to get, their, um, get their needs met. Mm -hmm. And so then it's our job to figure out, okay, what need are you trying to get met here? And what are healthier ways that you can then go about meeting that? And, exactly. Yeah. And it's not saying that, that anxiety is not real. That anxiety is real. But it's like you said, you look at that, what are those parts of anxiety? And it's that fear. It's the, it's the thinking. And sometimes it's that physiological reaction that we then have to help a person be able to manage through his mind-body techniques as well. You mentioned the African-American community, and that's one thing that, you know, all of my team therapy projects are designed um, to do. They're open to everyone, but it's really designed to help decrease the stigma of mental health within the African-American community. When you think about mental health, and this is just allowing you, you know, sometimes just um, talk freely, what would you say are some maybe challenges, obstacles, or something that you'd want the African-American community to know about mental health in general? Yes, I think the biggest thing for me that I've noticed is that there seems to be this, this thought or this kind of like battle between mental health and religion. That if for some reason you, you know, get assistance from like a therapist or a psychologist or some mental health professional that in some way that contradicts your spiritual beliefs. Um, so just helping the, the African-American community understand that, you know, you can have a therapist in Jesus too. It's okay. Like you can have both. It doesn't have to be an either or. Um, it doesn't make you less spiritual or like have less faith because you're seeking mental health um, support that Jesus might have sent you that therapist. Exactly, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, all right. We are getting close to being out of time and then there can be other times that we definitely speak in, in general as well. Um, is there anything that you'd wanna add or anything that you um, experience in, in the work that you're doing, you're doing or the people that you encounter that you think is beneficial for other people to know or? Um, yeah, I think just, just having the, I just want to encourage people to seek the, the support that they need and knowing that there isn't any shame in doing so and that there are 
you know, tons of providers out here who are willing and, and able to, to help, you know, support you through these tough times and that you don't have to go through these things alone, especially with things that are going on right now with, you know, COVID-19 and just the stressors associated with that, that um, you don't have to suffer in silence. Um, there, there are people here who are, who are willing and ready to, to help you. And since you mentioned COVID, and that's what I wanted to talk about as well, uh, are you doing telehealth? Yes, yes. I have transitioned to telehealth um, <laughs> in the past month or so. Yeah. What would you say? Is there anything that you want to tell someone about um, telehealth? I've been lucky that most of my clients that I've had, they've all transferred over to telehealth. And I've acquired a few new clients, but they've been exposed to therapy before. Is there anything that you'd want to tell maybe new people that are looking for therapy and we're definitely doing this in a non-traditional way right now? Yes, I think one of the positives about telehealth is that it allows the clients to kind of be in their home environment. So maybe it's a little bit more comfortable for some people uh, and takes off some of that uh, initial nervousness of having to go to an office and, and meet with somebody. There's a little bit of comfort there in being able to have those sessions at home. Um, if that's a, something people are interested in, I think now is a great time to test that out <laughs> and see, see if, if it works out for you. Okay. And I want to give you another opportunity too to talk about what you know, where you are, and how people can get in touch with you. Um, so again, just give us that, your contact and information that you feel free in sharing, and then also if you take insurance or any other situations or something that people might know us and how do they get a hold of you? How do they find you? Yes, um, I am currently practicing at Midwest Behavioral Health um, in our Fishers location. Um, you can reach me um, via phone. Uh, the number is 317-558-0630, extension 759. And do you have a website or a Facebook page or any social media things? I don't. I need to. I need to get on that. Yeah, we'll get you on that. We'll get you on I that. I do. I have to get on that. <laughs> okay. I did not know that Midwest was out in Fishers now, so that's really yes. Cool. Yeah, okay. we've um, really built up here, so yeah. I'm really excited about about the growth um, that's happening, and okay. looking forward to the continued growth of the future. Awesome. Awesome. Well, before I let you go, um, this is again, as I mentioned, part of tea and therapy, and one thing that we talk about is that it's designed to teach, empower, and advocate. So before I let you leave, I want you to kind of spill the tea as well. And in doing that, can you tell us, you know, your thoughts about what you teach, how you empower, and how and where you advocate? Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing that I teach is helping clients learn how to better regulate their emotions. Like that's the hardest thing for us to, to do. We're not taught how to do that in school <laughs> or really anywhere. Um, so we're kind of just winging it throughout life. Uh, so that's one of the biggest takeaways I hope my clients come away with from our services. Um, as far as empowering, I want clients to feel like they can speak up for the things that they need whether that's in therapy session, whether that's in their relationships with others and learning how to do that in a healthy, productive way. And then as far as advocacy, I think my job as a therapist is to be an advocate at times. Um, so just finding ways within the larger community to 
advocate for therapy services, for increased access for um, our communities, just in general, or access to mental health. I know it's a struggle for people at times, so trying to find ways to make sure that the services are accessible and that they're um, of, of high quality. Well, thank you very much for joining me on uh, my podcast, and hopefully I will see you again and um, to the other parts of community therapy as well. You're more than welcome, more than welcome. So you stay on, I'll, I'll stop recording, and we can just chat a little bit more. Right? Okay. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any information presented on this podcast is designed for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you are currently working with a psychologist or other mental health professional, please consult your provider before making any changes based on any information presented during this podcast.